The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Bloomberg Radio, on demand and in your podcast feed. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. I'm Tom Busby in New York. We begin today's program with a look ahead to the latest inflation data in the wake of that September jobs report out last week. For more, we're joined by Bloomberg International Economic and Policy Correspondent, Michael McKee. Michael, thanks for being here again. Always happy to be here. Well, let's talk first about this past Friday September jobs report, which you have described as, quote, the mother of all upside surprises. Not bad. <laughs> you know, we had a kind of a unusually high jobs report with, uh, uh, for the month, 336,000 jobs being created, but also 119,000 added for July and August. So uh, you're well over 400,000. Uh, the labor market has not gone away, at least not through September. Now, there's a lot of caveats to this, but it it just, it just tells you that the economy still remains strong or remains strong through September. And so the question is now, is that inflationary? See, I'm setting you up for yeah, your next question. For the next question. Well, <laughs> well, we did see wages rose again. That is inflationary. Um you know, so uh, that that is the question. This is a good news, bad news situation. But well, let's talk about the wages. They rose two tenths of a percent. The forecast was for a three tenths rise, and some economists had forecast a four tenths rise because uh, this all relates to the survey week, uh, the week that includes the twelfth, and then the day, the, the months and weeks between the two surveys. And there was a longer time between the surveys, so people thought maybe we would see higher wages uh, this time. Instead, we saw a lower-than-expected wage gain, and that pushed the year-over-year number down to 4.2%. That is still higher than the Fed's 3 to 3.5% they'd like to see, but it is uh, progress. So it's hard to argue that the 336,000 jobs created was an uh, inflationary event in and of itself. But it was a surprise, and we also saw a revision, 119,000 jobs added July and August. Um, ADP predicted just 89,000 private sector jobs. Boy, were they wrong. <laughs> yeah, they were They were uh, quite different. They would argue they're not wrong because they, they're not predicting. <laughs> but uh, the economists were wrong, too, in the sense that uh, the change in private payrolls forecast was 160,000, and we got 263,000. Uh, so um, nobody is covered in glory with the, uh, the forecast this time. Yeah, real surprise. Now, uh, you brought up inflation this week. We'll be looking at inflation. PPI for September out on Wednesday. CPI for the same month out on Thursday. What do you expect to see? 
Well, the forecasts are we're going to see a real slowing in inflation with the PPI for final demand. That's kind of the main figure that people look at, up just three-tenths. That's less than half of what it was the prior month because we saw energy prices sort of flatten out. Oil prices didn't start to go down until October, but uh, we're not going to get the same upward pressure that we did. If you look at the core PPI, just up two-tenths of 8%, which is also lower than the previous month. So it would suggest that progress is still being made uh, in in the uh, pipeline. Uh, CPI is also expected to be good news. The headline up only three-tenths. It was up six-tenths in August, and that was largely because of energy. So hopefully uh, the drop in energy is going to be good news. The core rate up is expected to be up three-tenths, which is unchanged from the prior uh, month. But both the year-over-year CPI and the CPI core will go down and they keep moving towards 2%. Not at a enormously fast pace, but fast enough that it suggests we are still seeing uh, progress. And we could see more, as you said, in October, just the first week. Oil down 10% West Texas. And uh, gasoline prices never really went up when oil went up, and they're going down still. So that will really register in the October CPI if that trend continues. Now, also on Wednesday, we get minutes from the Fed's latest meeting. And uh, obviously, this is leading into the next meeting, October 31st, November 1st. So let's talk about the minutes, what we should expect, what we should look for, what the Fed was thinking, because I'm sure they're all as surprised as anybody else about that September jobs report. Well, most of the uh, Fed speak that we've had since their last meeting has been on the order of we could do one more if we need to. So how do you define if we need to? And that's what people are going to be looking to in the minutes is what kind of economy would cause them to raise rates another time? Is it the 336,000 jobs created in September? uh, Or does the average hourly earnings take some of the edge off of that? Um, Is it uh, something to do with retail sales or uh, the outlook for uh, GDP growth, which in the third quarter is very, very strong, uh, somewhere between three and five percent. So uh, that's, I think, what people on the in the bond market, especially, and in the stock market, are going to want to look at is what would be the trigger for the Fed. And we still have a couple of weeks before the Fed had to make this decision. But uh, what is it looking like? All these, you know, as far as I can remember the past year, we've been calling for a recession. Before now, we've been calling for, uh, there were economists saying, this will be the last good jobs report before things, you know, take a nosedive. Uh, I think what we're likely to see in terms of the recession forecasts is um, keep the forecast, just push the date out. (laughs) Keep going. Uh, Because the feeling is, is with rates where they are and the economy as hot as it is, that this can't continue. They call that Stein's Law after Herb Stein. Is that which cannot continue will stop. And there's a feeling that maybe that has to happen, but a growing feeling that maybe not. Uh, this is not what you would call a sustainable level of hiring that we saw this past week. But uh, if we can continue to see job growth, that will continue to power consumer spending. If prices are coming down, then um, the G word comes into play, Goldilocks. And so uh, we'll see. And you you saw in the reaction to 
this the jobs report on Friday, we saw the Fed uh, funds futures only price in a. a 32% chance of a rate increase on November 1st. Now, that's up from 22%, but it's still only uh, you know a one-third chance that the Fed will raise rates again. So the markets are waiting for additional data as well. Everybody's data-dependent. Yeah, yeah. Now, speaking of data, let's talk more about the rates, because in housing, now we have a 7.5% rate. And even that does, is not affecting housing like it should. It's more that there are not enough houses for sale. So you're right, the consumer's still strong, consumer's still spending, people still have this demand. We saw auto sale, and we know those auto loan rates have gone up. Uh, Toyota and and GM, 15% increase in the last three years in auto sales leading up to last month. So you're right, the consumer keeps spending, keep making more money. who knows when it could end? <laughs> well, it you know the the old saying is it doesn't have to end. That it, expansions don't die of natural causes. The Fed kills them, and so that's kind of the playbook people are working from. That if the Fed gets rates up too high, it will kill the economy. But we don't see signs of that happening necessarily right now. the The neutral rate, uh, the rate uh, the Fed funds rate would be at, that doesn't stimulate or hold back the economy, is obviously higher than the Fed or anybody thought at this point. For a year, I think. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking at housing, they are having an impact because there's no houses for sale because people don't want to trade in their 3% mortgages for 7% mortgages. And that's going to be a problem down the road. It is going to be an issue. And how does the Fed get out of that? Because if they don't bring mortgage rates down significantly, people won't go back into the market. The new homes uh, are selling like hotcakes because uh, you don't have anybody in them, so uh, you don't have to worry about selling it. And a lot of the home builders are offering credits or financing that brings that mortgage rate down some. Uh, So uh, we're still seeing strong growth in that, which actually has, they both have a big, existing homes and new home sales have a big impact on the economy in different ways. Um, The new home sales, a lot of construction materials, obviously, and uh, new appliances, things like that. Whereas uh, the new homes, the existing homes, people tend to replace the carpets and buy furniture and uh, and that sort of thing. So um, we lose one, we gain the other. And you build it, someone will buy it, no matter where it is, where you put it, how big, how small, someone's going to buy that house. Bloomberg's international economic and policy correspondent, Michael McKee. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head across the pond and look at Ireland's upcoming budget with the country's financial services minister. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, the race for House Speaker is heating up. But first, while many countries in Europe are struggling with large budget deficits, Ireland is forecasting a run of big surpluses. That's thanks to buoyant corporate tax revenues. The Irish government unveiling its budget for next year in the coming days. And for more, let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, it's an enviable position for any government to be in, to have a surplus of income to spend on tax cuts or increased public spending. Across Europe, it's a pretty unusual occurrence. In Ireland, it's sparked massive political debate about how the money should be spent, especially as the country faces issues including an acute shortage of housing. The Finance Ministry in Dublin is expected to see a surplus of billions of euros this year and as much as £65 billion by 2027. The government, though, is conscious that the boom in corporate tax receipts, a big driver of that extra income, won't last. In fact, figures released in recent days showed the tax take from companies was 23% lower in the first nine months of this year compared to last year. Add to that a warning from the ESRI think tank that the Irish economy will contract for the first time this year since 2012. Now, while the domestic economy is growing, Ireland's headline GDP figures are distorted by the outsized nature of major international companies that operate there. Now, I've been discussing all of these issues with Ireland's Financial Services Minister, Jennifer Carroll McNeil. We started by talking about the much-debated choices the government is making in its upcoming budget. We're very careful about managing the projections there. We're very careful about how we may use that. We've obviously a commitment to put quite a bit of that aside for a pension reserve fund, for a sovereign wealth fund, different types of longer term investment in infrastructure, which is a really important piece for Ireland. At the same time, recognising that our construction unemployment is 2%. Our unemployment generally is, is 4%. We're absolutely at full employment. We've never had more people working in Ireland. So we have this very strong domestic economy from which a lot of our tax receipts are being generated. Also corporation tax. But we're mindful that, you look, Ireland has been through the mill in 15 years. We've been up and we've been down and we've worked very, very hard to recover our economy, make it resilient and strong. Yes, we're benefiting from significant surpluses at the moment but I think we take a very careful view about how we may invest that. We don't want to do anything that's inflationary and we're very careful about protecting ourselves for the future so we feel that it's the the product of a lot of hard work but we're very careful to to try to manage that for the future. So when the conversation's running up to the budget then how much of the surplus is going to go to those sort of precautionary measures or how much will go to other measures like tax cuts? It has been very significant already. We've put four billion across into one fund. We may very well put put a great deal more. We've identified just over a billion for tax cuts and I think at a time of full employment that's particularly important I think in Ireland we hit the higher rate of tax too soon and I think we're a bit of an outlier on that and when you're looking at marginal decisions in relation to going back to work or perhaps working more 
in a very tight labour market, those sorts of decisions around tax policies, uh, you know, they become quite important. And so we are trying to make sure that our very, very skilled workforce is able to work as much as it can, as much as it wants to. You might recognise that there's a lot of people taking a step back from work for a period, potentially with childcare costs. And so we're trying to adopt an approach of putting money back in people's pockets through tax cuts, but reducing a lot of structural costs in Ireland. So reducing the cost of childcare by 25% last year and hopefully more this year, reducing the cost of a child going to college, reducing upfront structural costs in health and making it easier to access services more cheaply, transport costs. What can you do at a time of inflation? You can cut the costs that you can control and you can give people money back to a point without it being inflationary. And so we're trying to approach it from those perspectives. We also have a very significant capital investment project. We have a lot of infrastructure that needs upgrading, but we do face constraints, employment constraints, particularly in the construction sector, which I think are reflected right across Western Europe, but are, you know, they are as acute in Ireland as anywhere else. What is the concern about what the drop off in the tax receipts could be, given that so much of that corporate tax money comes from a very limited number of companies in Ireland? Well, look, I think it's fair to say that any sort of sectoral specific challenge could have a very significant, yeah, tech, yeah, or even an individual company. And of course, you know, there are different intellectual property uh, issues, you know, about, about, about derogations running out and so on and so it's so it so we are very fortunate to have this position but we are very careful to, to manage it obviously Ireland is part of the OECD the new tax framework very pleased to be part of that looking forward to that and we have to manage that transition now over the next period but you know I'm looking at my ta- ta- tax receipts just this year you know income tax is up VAT receipts are up all of your domestic you know all of the indicators of a really strong domestic economy so we're generating very significant receipts from that as well it's not just corporation tax it's income tax it's VAT it's activity in the employment sector we have never had more people at work in Ireland and we have a very highly skilled labour force so it's a, it's a good time for us considering where we were 10 years ago we're very excited to be here but we take a careful pause in mm. our approach to it you know we recognise that we want to be in as resilient a position 10 years from now and of course there's going to be ups and downs. Of course, there's going to be retrenchments in different sectors. Earlier this year, for example, there was a slight retrenchment in tech in employment. We have a very strong financial services sector, as you're aware, and we found that a lot of that uh, skill was absorbed immediately by financial services in fintech, insuretech, great innovation that's coming out of Ireland because we have this juxtaposition of tech and financial services right beside each other. We're doing a lot of very interesting, exciting things there. So it's, I think it's a, it's, it's a good moment, but I think in Ireland we will always adopt a sort of a careful pause. We've come back from a really disastrous financial crash to a balanced budget to an interesting surplus. Some of the changes that we've seen post-Brexit in the UK has been a move away from some of the MIFID II regulations, particularly around funding for research. Is that giving the UK a competitive edge when it comes to attracting financial services companies versus Ireland? It's not what I'm hearing. I think what I would reflect is that I think we're at a point where, you know, I became Minister for Financial Services in December when we hadn't the Windsor Framework agreed and we were in a very different place in terms of our conversations and our dialogue. It's now the beginning of October and I'm so pleased that that has been agreed and that we can have really constructive, you know, conversations about what we do together in the future. And I don't think that we need to approach it in, a, in, a, in, a, in an overly competitive sort of way. Obviously Ireland is at the centre of Europe, is going to continue to do everything it can to protect and develop the single market and the opportunities within that uh, but we're so very pleased to have this close, close relationship with London uh, as financial services 
you know, okay, fine, there's some friendly competition. competitors. Friendly competitors. And do you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. It does both of us well. London has been and always will be a major financial centre of for the world. And, you know, we benefit very strongly by London doing well and, and we will do well from that. So I approach it in a very collaborative way. You mentioned the Windsor framework. Are you disappointed there hasn't been restoration of the executive since the Windsor framework agreed? I should point out you also uh, used to be a member of the parliamentary committee that looked at the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. I am, I am really disappointed. I am really disappointed because you know, for so many reasons, it's a major democratic gap to have political institutions that were voted in by the people where you have free and fair elections, which is, you know, a a privilege and a luxury that most people around the world, you know, do not in fact have. You free and fair elections and the opportunity to represent your community and government. It's an extraordinary privilege and an extraordinary opportunity. And nowhere is that more important than trying to build a reconciled society in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has the most exceptional opportunity being both part of the UK and in many ways the access to the single market. Also, we want to see Northern Ireland do well. We want to see the ministers in place making decisions. We want to see collaboration in the way that we can between Dublin and Belfast. We want nothing but good things for Northern Ireland. But, you know, the political institutions have to run. And I would say that of the 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement, Stormont hasn't been in operation for, I think, close to 10 of those, if not slightly more. Mm. And that's a major gap. And I think that that's going to require reflection over the next period. That was Ireland's Financial Services Minister Jennifer Carol McNeil speaking to me here on Bloomberg Radio ahead of the budget announcement coming in the coming days. Also very interesting to get her views on the political stalemate in Northern Ireland where an executive hasn't functioned for well over a year and a half at this stage due to political disagreements over Northern Ireland's post-Brexit trade rules. So good to get her perspective on those issues too. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to the nation's capital and look at the race for Speaker of the House. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Bloomberg Radio, on demand and in your podcast feed. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. One of the biggest political stories we're watching this week is the race for Speaker of the House. Republicans will host a candidate forum on Tuesday 
and the closed party election will take place on Wednesday. There's no timeline for electing a speaker on the House floor. Now for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, that's right. After an historic week in the House of Representatives that saw the ousting of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker through a motion to vacate brought by Republican Congressman from Florida, Matt Gates, this coming week promises to bring drama all its own as the House attempts to decide on who the next Speaker will be. Here with me for more is Megan Scully, who leads Bloomberg's Congress coverage here in Washington. So, Megan, this is promising to be kind of chaotic. Chaotic seems to be the status quo in the House of Representatives <laughs> at the moment. And there's a lot of individuals to talk about. So I'd like to take them kind of just one by one, beginning with one individual who this past week got the endorsement of former President Trump, Congressman Jim Jordan from Ohio, the chair of the Judiciary Committee. What are his strengths and weaknesses as a speaker candidate? Sure. So so Jim Jordan is is probably best known for being a bomb thrower within the caucus. He doesn't like to wear a jacket. Uh, he's very sort of anti-establishment. And he um, is one of the lawmakers who's leading the impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden. This all plays very well for, as does Trump's endorsement, for the the hardliners in the party, many of the same who had issues with with Kevin McCarthy and, and really, you know, worked against him during his, his very short term as speaker and, and ultimately ousted him. Um, so so that that's all good for, for Jim Jordan. The downside, though are the moderates, particularly the 18 House Republicans who are from districts that Joe Biden carried in 2020. These are very, very purple areas, um, and they're not terribly supportive of the impeachment inquiry. And this makes Jim Jordan a very difficult and problematic speaker candidate mm-hmm. for folks like Mike Lawler and Mark Molinaro from New York. There's several in Southern California as well. OK, so knowing that whoever ultimately is going to be speaker needs to get the majority of the caucus, be that 217 or maybe lower if there's some people that don't show up, the math's going to get very hard, especially when also in the mix is someone like Steve Scalise, the sure. majority leader kind of maybe the continuity candidate you could see in that way, he's likely to appeal more to some of those moderates, some of those more endangered individuals, right? Yes, Steve Scalise is is sort of the the safer candidate for those individuals. He is very conservative. You know, he's he's definitely not a moderate, uh, but he is not one to uh, be particularly polarizing to the American public. Uh, he's he's definitely more of the same mold as Kevin McCarthy, uh, but and is and is a well known entity, someone that that the moderates I think feel like they can trust. Um, he is not as problematic as Jim Jordan for sure, and I think you're going to see the the those folks really rally behind him. Although it's it remains to be seen whether he can get the hard right who's mm-hmm. going to support 
Jim Jordan. Again, it comes down to the math. The math is just really tough. And there's other people kind of floating out there uh, as well, like Congressman Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma. What's his deal? So, you know, I'm I'm very curious to see what happens with him and whether he emerges as a consensus candidate, somebody who the hardliners can begrudgingly get on board with and the moderates can sort of hold their nose and, and vote for. Um, he is the chairman of, of the largest ideological group in the House, um, the Republican Study Committee, and, and they are a conservative group, although they tend to be less bombastic than the House Freedom Caucus. So while folks like Mike Lawler might not be on board with Kevin Hearn's policies, um, he his approach and his strategy is something that that they can tolerate much more so than a Jim Jordan. And of course, the other individual here who is technically the one who interim is speaker, Congressman Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. He is acting in, in a pro-temporary position right now. A kind of our understanding is he doesn't really have that much power other than to preside over a, a speaker's vote. And on the idea of when this vote's actually going to happen, are the Republicans going to try to sort them out, sort all this out themselves, understand that someone is going to get the requisite majority vote before they actually take it to the floor, remembering it took 15 rounds over the course of four days to get McCarthy the speaker's gavel in the first place in January? That is certainly the big question. Uh, my money is on them not being able to rally re- behind a candidate. That is what that is what party leaders are going to be trying to do on Tuesday before this goes to the floor on Wednesday. They don't want a whole messy spectacle on the floor on Wednesday. But looking at how things went <laughs> with McCarthy's ouster, which was the first in, in U.S. history, mm-hmm. I find it very difficult to believe that this is going to be clean and short and be a a show of unity for the GOP. I suspect that when this goes to the floor, it is going to be a very divided Republican conference. And I think that Democrats, just like they did with the vote on McCarthy, are going to watch from the sidelines Mm -hmm. and and cast their no votes against whoever it is and, and vote for Remember, Jeffries, actually, Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, had the most votes of of any candidate going into that 15th round because Democrats really united behind him. So we're going to see that. And it's just it's going to continue to be extremely messy. We thought that the 15 rounds that McCarthy went through was long and drawn (laughs) out. It was certainly extraordinary, if not a record. Uh, I suspect this could go much longer and be far more bruising. So buckle up, everyone. Exactly. That's what's going to come on the floor potentially this coming week. I also want to talk about a letter that 45 Republican members of the House wrote about what happened this past week. This includes the likes of Mike Lawler, who you've mentioned a few times. He signed this letter along with 44 others. Part of what they wrote, this is a quote, Ashamed and embarrassed by what happened on the floor this week, we refuse to allow the eight members who abandoned and undermined our conference to dictate every outcome in policy and personnel for the remainder of this Congress, including the upcoming selection of the Speaker of the House. They're talking about the motion to vacate, Megan. Is it going to go away? How hard will that be? It's extremely hard. This motion to vacate was something that Kevin McCarthy had to agree to to be elected speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and and 
what that is essentially and how we saw that play out was it only took one member to bring that to the floor and then it it required only a simple majority of the House lawmakers present and voting to oust the speaker. That meant that McCarthy throughout his, again, mm-hmm. very short term, nine nine months, I think it was the third shortest in U.S. history, um, throughout his term as speaker, essentially had this gun to his head yeah. where he was concerned, you know, with, with every twist and turn that, that he could be ousted. Um, getting the hardliners to relent on that uh, will be extraordinarily difficult, extraordinarily difficult, because that is what gives them their power. Mm -hmm. So why would they let that go? They want to hold on to the leverage. Absolutely. So much to look forward to. Yes. Just more paradise here in Washington. Really looking forward to your coverage of this over the coming week. Megan Scully, the leader of Bloomberg's congressional team here in Washington. Thank you very much. And Tom, Buckle up. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound on co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound on weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, after China's Golden Week, we look at the holiday's impact on the country's economy. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Will China's seven-day Golden Week holiday be a hope for the country's economy to reset? Let's get to Brian Curtis, co-host of Bloomberg's Daybreak Asia radio show to find out more. Tom, China markets reopen in the coming week after the Golden Week holiday. What might we expect? We're joined by Rebecca Chong-Wilkins, Bloomberg Asia government and economics correspondent. So I'm curious, Rebecca, what you're hearing from investors now, because this has been a critical time. And do they need a catalyst to come back in? Well, I think the big story for them is watching whether or not the Chinese consumer has come back during the Golden Week holiday. So this is, you know, a long stretch, eight days where typically we see Chinese people going out, traveling, spending and buying more. Um, Obviously, that has been severely dented by sort of waning confidence, the property crisis and so on. Um, And so that's really where investors are focusing. Are we seeing an improvement in? 
in sort of services, um, in consumer spending, in tourism. And then the other part of this is property. Now, I think the prevailing feeling is that for property, there's still some of that pessimism there. Just looking at the first four days of the month in 30 major cities, the data looks really weak. We're seeing this big decline again year over year. We, we hardly the, are the way through the month. But, you know, even when we compare to September, marginal improvement there month over month. But, you know, more broadly, it doesn't look like we're seeing a bottoming out. So that pessimism is prevailing. But in the consumer sectors and in the services part, we are maybe seeing these pockets of positive signs. And that might be enough to start bringing some traders back in. You cited some numbers from the Golden Week holiday. And we know that Golden Week has historically been a key test for the property sector. Uh, is there any possible catalyst there that investors might seize upon? And, and if so, what would it look like? Would it be like dramatic sales in Shanghai or in Beijing? Or would it be in the outlying areas? What would they be feasting on? I think there are a couple of elements there. So the first is, and, we, and I'll just say, we're not really expecting this, but the first would be to see a more comprehensive approach from the government to try and support the sector. What we've seen so far has been very piecemeal, very localized, and pretty focused on specific regions or specific cities. Now, if we saw some kind of bigger restructuring program or bigger supportive policy program that we saw, for example, in 2015, the regeneration of the slums, anything that was more comprehensive from the central government, I think that certainly would be a sign of a different MO from Beijing that would be taken very positively. We haven't seen signs that that's coming. But of course, it it remains an option depending on how long this sort of how much economic pain that Beijing can be willing to endure. You had oversupply and you had property developers get in trouble. But then you also have a big fall off in demand. What is the main cause of the drop in demand? Well, it is the crackdown that Beijing has rolled out into the property market which is specifically focused on this idea of cracking down on speculative buying of property market. That speculative bet is what has driven the production of oversupply, particularly in those smaller cities. That you know that if you bought a second, third, maybe a fourth or a fifth property, it was a guaranteed way to in- increase your wealth because the value of those markets was just going up and up and up and up. Now that trend has stopped. Not only has it stopped, but the demand for buying, the demand for renting has fallen and prices have fallen off. This sort of scary part, I think, um, for longtime watchers of the market and for you know investors who are thinking about where they want to be in China long term too and its economic growth model, is that some estimates say that we are only about 17% of the way through fixing that oversupply product. All right, Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. Great insights there. Rebecca Chong-Wilkins, Bloomberg Asia Government and Economics Correspondent. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every Every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thanks, Brian. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.